0: Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and law. Today's topic is, can Lena Kahn take down big tech? Our speaker is my college roommate, Josh Sovin, who's a partner at Paul Weiss, who works in antitrust. Josh previously worked at the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, the Biden administration is attacking big tech with the intent of changing business practices at companies like Amazon and Google. I want to learn from Josh why Lena Kahn, who's the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, decided to go after the big technology companies. Is the problem big tech size? And does that mean that these firms need to change how they do business? In the recent past, there was a bipartisan consensus that antitrust policy's goal was to maximize consumer welfare. Why is that no longer the goal and what will replace it? Buckle up. Josh, please begin with your opening six minute remarks.
1: Larry, thanks for inviting me back to the program. These of course are my views, not those of any Paul Weiss clients. We represent many companies with interests in these issues, including virtually all of the large technology companies. Antitrust policy today has a sky high profile. The headline of a Politico article on Monday was the next generation of law students is obsessed with FTC Chair Lena Kahn. According to the article, antitrust is hip. Those are two words that I never thought I would read in the same sentence. But today I want to go beyond the headlines and talk about what's really going on in antitrust policy and enforcement. First, it's important to remember that for at least the last 30 years, there has been strong bipartisan support for the core components of antitrust policy. The reason is simple. Antitrust helps to make a free market economy work. Without it, there would be price fixing, bid rigging, and mergers that would harm consumers. Nobody, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, wants such anti-competitive conduct to happen. Second, while you would never know it from the press, the ultimate outcomes of antitrust investigations in the Biden administration look pretty much the same as they did in Republican and Democratic administrations for the past three decades. Mergers like the ones that were completed in the Trump, Obama, Bush, and Clinton administrations are still going through today. The antitrust box scores actually look very similar. To be clear in making this observation, I'm not critiquing what the antitrust agencies are doing today, just the opposite. I think it's a sign that antitrust policy continues to work. Now, what is different? Merger investigations that previously took 30 to 60 days to go through now can take months. And DOJ and the FTC are more inclined to ask merging parties to produce tens of millions of pages of documents and many reams of data. But companies in the market are adapting. The antitrust agencies' demand for documents and data are causing merging parties to adopt new strategies and new technologies to produce materials faster and prevent the agencies from attempting to run out the clock on their deals. There have been some substantive changes. DOJ and the FTC have challenged a handful of mergers that their predecessors probably would have let go. But to date, the antitrust agencies have lost all of those cases where they attempted to push the envelope of antitrust law. For example, the court rejected the FTC's attempt to stop Meta's acquisition of a startup company with many competitors that produced a virtual reality fitness app. And again, companies continue to adapt to the new process by preparing to litigate as soon as they sign their deals. But notwithstanding these losses, DOJ and the FTC continue to work hard to make sure to restore the antitrust laws to their original purpose. They are proposing new merger guidelines that draw heavily on Supreme Court cases from the 1950s and 60s. Whether they can get any traction on these changes is highly uncertain because the changes are not self-executing. Unlike in many other countries, DOJ and the FTC need to go to court to stop conduct that companies are committed to pursuing. And for the Biden administration to accomplish its objectives, judges will not only need to look past several generations of antitrust cases, but will need to alter the fundamental assumptions about the purpose of antitrust in the first place. The real-world practical change that occurred in antitrust after the 1960s was that the courts decided that for conduct to violate the antitrust laws, there had to be actual evidence that the conduct was likely to increase prices, lower wages, or reduce innovation. Chair Khan, what she's really trying to do is expand the objectives of antitrust to include other goals, including protecting small businesses, unconcentrated market structures, and what the chair described in her famous article about Amazon as, quote, the dispersion of political and economic control, unquote. Today's judges have absolutely no experience thinking about antitrust along these lines.
0: Why are law students so interested in Lena Kahn, and what is she trying to accomplish with antitrust?
1: I think it's a combination of things. The chair has been able to talk about antitrust in a real-world way. For the most part, it's been this inside baseball DC legal practice that's loaded up with jargon and economics and sounds fairly obscure. The chair has been effective at explaining her view of antitrust in layperson language and making it accessible to a much broader audience. So that, along with the fact that the targets of antitrust law today for these well-known companies, is drawing law students to her cause.
0: Since Robert Bork published his influential book, The Antitrust Paradox, in 1978, his idea was that the purpose of antitrust law was to increase consumer welfare. In your opening remarks, you mentioned that Lena Kahn's idea goes back to the scholars from the 50s and 60s. What were the prior generation of legal academics and judges trying to accomplish the antitrust law?
1: The antitrust laws were passed in 1890 in the progressive era. The FTC itself was set up under the Wilson administration in 1914. There was great concern about economic concentration, and for the first 60 years of the history of antitrust, the law was applied in a way that was very focused on the form of a conduct with little emphasis on the effect of the conduct. So a contract with a certain form was illegal in some circumstances, even though there was no demonstrable effect on price or output. The Bork Revolution or the Chicago Revolution, you know, it's often talked about, in somewhat hyperbolic and, indeed, by some sinister terms. But really what it was was not sort of this takeover of ideology, but just a set of principles to say, look, we think antitrust is important, but we need to ground it into some objective standards because otherwise the antitrust agencies are essentially engaging in arbitrary social planning. So what Bork and other scholars, such as former Justice Breyer said, is we need to think about this in terms of output and price, and the clearest way to do that is to focus on consumers. It's a clean, objective target where we can make decisions, and that's not to minimize the other issues that led to the formation of antitrust, but we think there are better government policies and agencies to handle them.
0: Josh, 40 years ago, we took an economic history class together at Penn with Walter Licht, and in that class... We read the Marxist historian Gabriel Coco about the complex politics necessary to pass the Sherman Act that resulted in monopoly busting. But for the past 20 years, there's been a bipartisan consensus that consumer welfare should be the objective for antitrust policy. Why did that consensus change
1: recently? The short version of history was you had 60 years of focus on structure and small competitors. Then there was, over a 20-year period, a bipartisan resetting of antitrust. What we're talking now is about focus on consumer welfare and wage rates and expansion of output. The chair is very much a product of her time, as well as an original thinker. What she's saying is, I see some very powerful large companies about which I'm concerned, and I don't believe... That the traditional tools of antitrust that have been in place are effective at addressing these issues related to corporate power and increases in market concentration. None of this is really tightly tied to consumers. And in fact, the chair has pushed back on using the consumer welfare standard as a focus of liability, in part because she has some doubts as to whether it will be effective in litigation. If you're concerned, primarily about market structure and keeping small businesses in place, then a standard which requires you to prove that there'll be a price effect often is not helpful.
0: Before joining the FTC, Lena Kahn wrote an essay opposing Amazon's business practices. I would like to use Amazon as a case study before moving on to Google and Meta. What were Chair Khan's arguments?
1: Her famous article, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, which is a play on Judge Bork's famous book, The Antitrust Paradox, was largely focused on Amazon and its providers of capital charging prices that were too low, that were driving out competitors. The chair noted reports that said Amazon was losing money, but nonetheless was thriving and its market share increased and its market cap was going up. And her theory articulated in the article was that this was essentially a form of predation.
0: Lena Khan's FTC recently sued Amazon, asserting that Amazon charges too many fees for small businesses and forces them to use Amazon's logistics for Amazon Prime. How does this case fit in with Lena Khan's original Amazon essay about the company lowering prices too much?
1: The case she recently brought really doesn't address that issue. The case is actually fairly traditional in terms of its structure. The core of the complaint is that Amazon is allegedly using practices to prevent competing platforms and sellers from lowering price through distribution avenues that are competitive alternatives to Amazon. In that sense, the complaint is a bit of a 180 from what she originally wrote, just a. Underscore, again, Amazon is a client of Paul Weiss. This is my reflection on what the chair was doing.
0: Many retailers offer generic products or even products that they manufacture themselves. Is the FTC heading the direction of fairness to competitors versus actions that hurt consumers?
1: That's a good point. The last 30 years of antitrust have said fair really shouldn't count. Maybe political leaders can decide what fair is, but it doesn't make sense for a relatively small number of unelected lawyers at the FTC and the Justice Department to be deciding what fair is. Society makes judgments about what's fair all the time, but antitrust law and the Justice Department and the FTC are the wrong place to decide that. The FTC understands that problem in terms of litigating their case.
0: I thought that if you build the best product and that dominates the market, then that is fine under antitrust law. But if you acquire your competitors to create a monopoly, then that's problematic.
1: There's this famous maxim that the competitor, having been urged to compete, should not be penalized when he or she wins. So we want companies to work hard to do well. But having done well, there are certain rules of the road that are put up to prevent companies from doing things which reduce competition.
0: Unlike a merger where the FTC can stop it with a business practices case, can a company simply agree to change its practices and then everybody's happy? This business practice change seems small in the bigger picture.
1: That brings up a really important point about remedies in antitrust. The way this tends to work is the government spends a lot of time deciding rightly or wrongly that they think there's a problem, but then get to the end of the movie and go, well, look, what are we going to do about it? Because we, as a government agency, are admittedly terrible at regulating markets. And so they'll try, but then judges get skeptical. And businesses, to your point, can and do change business practices midstream to go, look, we don't think there's a problem at all, but in any event, we'll move X to Y and then there's clearly no problem. So, part of the reason that people have been reluctant to bring these big cases is they're not at all sure what's going to happen at the end of the case, even if they win on liability. The cases that are going on right now raise very complex remedy issues. The last thing you want to do is come up with a remedy which results in less innovation, less dynamic change stifles the next big thing that would benefit consumers.
0: Next topic is the meta acquisition of a VR company. Here is a startup that Meta wants to buy that appears to be just about an idea. The firm doesn't even have a product. What are we talking about as it relates to competition and monopoly?
1: Typically, merger cases involve facts where clear the government thinks they can prove in the foreseeable future something bad will happen to price or outcome, and I can show this through super high market shares or bad documents or data and the like. This was a case where the company was essentially a startup, so really hard to say what was going to happen in the future. Lots of other people are working on this technology. They couldn't prove that a lot of other large companies weren't going to put their back into this and be hyper-aggressive in the same space. Judges have been very reluctant regardless of where they fit on the political spectrum, to stop deals where they don't have a pretty high level of confidence that something bad is likely to happen. Now, the chair's point is that's the wrong standard.
0: Is this Meta case simply about being anti-big tech? Meta is a huge business with a big concentration in social media, and the last thing the government wants is for Meta to also win in VR. Should size matter? especially in big, bad tech?
1: The chair of the FTC has certainly been clear that she believes that was the purpose of the antitrust laws. These companies are big and have a significant market share and a significant amount of economic power. And therefore, the way she sees it, it's appropriate to apply the antitrust laws to them in a rigorous way. The counter to that is we should not be basing enforcement decisions on what's happening in the market. Are prices going up or down? Are we seeing innovation? Are we seeing new entry? Are we seeing contestable markets? Are we seeing increases in consumer welfare? There's a strong argument that that's where the antitrust law should be focused, not on whether a company is big or small.
0: What was the role of competitors and clients in encouraging the FTC to bring
1: litigation? So that brings me back to the point I made that none of this is self-executing, that you cannot wave a wand or decide this on your own, that I want to change this very substantial part of U.S. economic policy. It's an operational exercise, and by that I mean you have to go to court for many of these cases and demonstrate to a generalist judge that there's a problem. Judges, of course, take the government seriously, they assume they're acting in good faith, but For the most part, they're not simply going to do something because the government says it's the right thing to do. They're going to look at the evidence of how the market is performing. And customers are sometimes, but not always, a relevant indicator of whether there's a problem or not. The batting average of customers in litigation is mixed at best. You would think they are the most reliable, neutral parties to express opinions about whether conduct is anti-competitive or not. The track record is uneven. Sometimes they are persuasive to courts and courts will rely on them, which is why the government seeks them out when they're investigating cases and putting together the litigation strategy. But often judges have said, well, look, there's really no factual basis to what you're saying. You're simply speculating about what's going to happen. It seems like you have lots of competitive alternatives. And so while I'm not doubting your sincerity, I think you're wrong. But Customers, competitors, other third parties have been and will remain an important part of the fact-discovery process and the way the government puts together their cases.
0: You said that for the previous 20 years, there was a bipartisan agreement about antitrust. Is that still true, or has Lena Khan split the political parties?
1: Oh, I think it's actually still bipartisan. Clearly, the chair is doing certain things that, you know, Republicans would not agree with and probably many Democrats would not agree with. But that core of the policy, three quarters of the pie chart, the consensus still exists for that.
0: What could be different in antitrust if the Republicans take over or if there's a new Democratic administration?
1: First, with respect to process, there is certainly the hope amongst, you know, many of the clients we represent that the investigations would become more focused and less broad in terms of the discovery of requests. Those have significantly expanded. There's not a lot of evidence that that improves government decision-making or ability to litigate cases. And so there would be significant advocacy efforts to scale those back a bit. And then finally, I think there'll be a push to argue that resources should be better spent on conduct, that is unambiguously anti-competitive, make sure you do those things well, rather than bringing cases where, by their own admission, they may have a low probability of winning.
0: How does Elizabeth Warren and her progressive allies in the Democratic Party want to change antitrust policy?
1: Senator Warren thinks markets are overly concentrated that there's too much corporate power, So she has urged the FTC and the antitrust division from the start of the Biden administration to be aggressive in how they litigate transactions, not to settle cases that are brought against merging parties, but rather to take those cases to verdict. She believes antitrust is an important tool to reducing the level of concentration in the economy.
0: Elizabeth Warren sent a letter to the FTC condemning a merger settlement with Amgen why did senator warren want the ftc to litigate
1: so the amgen horizon merger was a somewhat non-traditional enforcement action in the first place because the parties didn't compete the ftc brought the case litigated it for a while and then settled on terms that governed how the parties could operate their businesses going forward last week senator warren wrote a letter to the chair of the ftc and the other democratic commissioners critiquing that decision, saying that the commission should have continued to prosecute the case, and that she urged the commissioners to roll out new merger guidelines. She believes that verdicts are more effective than so-called conduct, consent decrees, or negotiated settlements.
0: Why are legal settlements problematic? Are business practice solutions perceived
1: to be toothless, There's a view that these conduct remedies have not been particularly effective, that it is better to stop the merger outright, the thinking being that the government is not particularly good at monitoring companies' behavior, and in any event, that's a hard thing to do.
0: The FTC keeps losing the tough cases. Is there a benefit for the progressives to litigate and lose?
1: It is useful for judges to articulate the so-called rules of the road for antitrust. The antitrust statutes are quite general in nature. They're not particularly detailed or prescriptive. They don't provide a lot of guidance. A benefit of litigation has been judges writing opinions that apply these general principles to very fact-specific matters. And then companies have more guidance about how the courts may or may not address future cases with similar facts.
0: Isn't Congress the right venue to establish the rules of the road?
1: There have been proposals in Congress to change the antitrust laws that lower the burden on the government, that create stronger presumptions that certain transactions reduce competition. My view is that it would be difficult for Congress unless they want to come up with bright-line rules about deciding what mergers are legal and what are illegal to devise rules that are particularly prescriptive or detailed and the like, because there's so many fact situations out there that it's hard to come up with rules that are likely to be effective across the board.
0: If the progressives could act boldly, what would they want to accomplish with antitrust?
1: The debate that's going on is whether there should be bright line rules that prohibit certain conduct in certain transactions, regardless of whether you can show An anti-competitive effect or a likely effect on price or output. So people who want to be particularly aggressive in antitrust will say a non-compete agreement or a merger above X percent should be automatically illegal, let's cut to the chase, instead of having this deep-dive fact-specific analysis to determine how the conduct at issue will affect the market. So if you really want to change the way the work is done, then that's the route people are exploring and many people would like to take. Thus far, there's been no support in the courts for that, and Congress has not passed any legislation which would move the antitrust laws into that paradigm.
0: I end each podcast with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to antitrust policy?
1: I am quite optimistic, to go back to my bipartisan consensus, that that's going to continue to prevail. All of this only makes sense and is only relevant in a free market economy. It's no accident that when you had a world populated with state-run economies, that there were very few antitrust agencies out there. As markets moved away from government control to open markets, you had a dramatic proliferation of antitrust agencies. So you went from like 20 agencies to 100 in the space of about 15 years that reflects a buy-in into open markets competition a lack of incumbency and that antitrust has been extremely effective in helping in a certain way to protect that
0: thanks to josh for joining us today if you missed last week's show check it out the podcast topic was the urban battle of gaza city Our speaker was Anthony King, who is a professor of war studies at the University of Exeter in the UK. Tony has written a recent book entitled Urban Warfare in the 21st Century. Tony explained about what will happen during the Israeli ground war, what the street battles will look like, and how the hostages will impact the military strategy. He explained how Hamas will rearm after their weapons run low, and what lessons learned from the Ukraine war, ...applies to the urban conflict in Gaza. We also discussed the historical experience from similar urban battles in Algiers... ...and more recently in Aleppo and Iraq. I now want to make a plug for next week's podcast with Dr. Ari Cement... ...who is the author of a new book entitled Breathless Tales... ...Life, Laughter, and Lessons... Ari ran the COVID ward at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach when I was a patient recovering from COVID in December 2020. I want to learn from Ari what the learning process for COVID doctors during the pandemic and what lessons were learned for the next medical catastrophe. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in 6 minutescom Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for
1: joining us today. Goodbye.